2: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a conversation with journalist Maria Inahosa, The longtime host of Latino USA has written a new memoir, Once I Was You, where she talks about being the first Latina in every newsroom she's ever worked in and her struggles with imposter syndrome, and about the stories she cares most deeply about, the stories of immigrants. Immigrants who are detained and abused who force this nation to confront its cruelty and hypocrisy, and immigrants finding ways to embrace their binational identities and shape what it means to be American. Maria Inojosa joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Maria Inajosa respects and understands the power of journalism. As the host of NPR's Latino USA and founder of the nonprofit news organization Futuro Media, she uses that power to tell the stories of people often ignored by mainstream outlets, people vulnerable and unseen. In her new book, Once I Was You, A Memoir of Love and Hate in a Torn America, Inahosa shares how she became a trailblazer in journalism who learned to own her voice and how her life has been shaped by decades of U.S. immigration policy. Maria Inahosa, thanks so much for coming on Forum.
3: It's so great to be with you. Hello, San Francisco! <laughs> Hello, you, from across the other side. Here yes. From Harlem, love to San Francisco. <laughs> right,
2: where you're speaking to us from your home because of this pandemic. And also, you are a survivor of COVID-19. <clears throat>
3: I am. I The last place I visited, actually, was California. I was in L.A. Uh, before that, it was Mississippi, Detroit, Chicago. Um, <clears throat> and... I, you know, I have to say I'm a pretty healthy person. I haven't had the flu for about 20 years. I travel all the time on planes, trains, automobiles. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, early on I was, um, I was getting ready to fly to Mexico to, to report a story. So I was kind of like, um, you know, I'm fearless. Like I'm not, I'm not going to get this. I'm not, I'm not going to get this. And then, you know, the shutdown starts, and the first week was cool. Like everything was like, "Oh, look, I'm doing little Zoom gym classes with my daughter. We're cooking every night." And then slowly, I began to feel just worse and worse. Mm. And and then you're like, you know, I mean, we didn't even have a thermometer at home because we we're very healthy, and our kids were off in college. And uh, that was when I finally called a medical friend, and he said, "You need to get a thermometer." And um, you couldn't find thermometers in New York City. Uh. Uh, So I started calling and we found a local one that said, oh, yeah, we have them. We just have them behind the counter so that people won't buy them all. And I'll never forget that. I'm like, oh, my God, this is happening in New York City. And then basically, I had a fever uh, that hovered around uh, 100. But for me, that's a lot because I'm petite And I've calculated it was probably 30 days. So it was not fun. I didn't, I was able to breathe. Um, I could not walk anywhere. I had no energy. I felt like a gorilla was banging my body with a stick. Um, I got very angry, very aggressive. Um, But I was, mine was considered a mild version. And I'm so thankful every day when I wake up, I swear I'm so thankful every day when I wake up, I'm like, here I am, I survived this.
2: Yes, I am so glad it was a mild version. And just listening to you describe your experience, but in particular, you describe how, you know, you're fearless and you're petite. It reminds me a lot of how you described your mom in your memoir, Once I Was You. I I have to tell you that description of your mother's encounter with the immigration agent, inspecting your green cards when you were coming to the U.S. from Mexico as a baby in 1962 made my heart stop as I was reading it, um, where this agent actually tried to separate the two of you. You were coming to be with your father, who was hired as a researcher at the University of Chicago. Could you tell that story?
3: Well, the thing is, is that that story evolved. So first, I didn't know the story, which one of the reasons why I wrote the book is, please find out these stories. And sometimes you're going to have to ask about the story more than once to kind of get to what really happened. But I really didn't know the story. <clears throat> by that time, I was already a reporter. I was a reporter. I was a journalist. I was writing, raising Raul, uh, my memoir for my son. So it was like the late 1990s. <clears throat> and I asked my mom, so, what? so we came by plane, but what really happened? And the way I used to tell the story was that we came my two brothers my sister my mom all dolled up you know by plane from Mexico City to Dallas change planes in Dallas go off to Chicago where my dad was a medical doctor at the at the University of Chicago and and that something happened at the airport that's what what, what you know something happened this immigration agent he said some things but you know i spoke back to him and that was for about almost 20 years the way i would tell the story at all of my public speaking events, because it was kind of like, oh my God, here's where Maria Hinojosa learned how to be the loud Latina, you know, where she learned how to have her voice. It was from her mother, who at that moment spoke back to an immigration agent. But I didn't really know <clears throat> until what it really, really meant, until my mom called me right at the time when everybody was hearing that tape of babies and toddlers and children crying, wailing for their families, wailing for their mothers. And the entire country at that moment was like looking this straight up in the eyes. And you know, what it did was that it was very traumatic for a lot of people. And I get a phone call from my mom. <clears throat> and my mom says, she's crying. I said, mami, que pasa, que pasa mami, you know, cause you know, when your mom calls you cry. I know Mijita es que I realized that those mothers who are crying now for their children that have been taken from me, that could have been me. And I was like, what are you talking about, mom? Mom, what are you talking about? Mamita, those children, those babies, they could have been you. And my heart stopped. Like yours. I I was in an airport. It was crowded. It was noisy. It was the least intimate place to be getting this news. And <clears throat> and I just went into kind of like, um, you know, zombie land on the next plane, just like kind of thinking about this connection and just feeling this pain deeply. And so that's, that's what ends up happening in the writing of the, this book. And I did not know that <clears throat> the immigration agent actually said those words to my mom when he saw my body with a rash. And he said, we are going to keep her. We're gonna put her in quarantine. And I really thought for, also like that was just a fluke, like, oh, that just happened once. That was some weird immigration agent, you know. No, you know, I have to go back and find the architectural uh, plans for the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport in 1962. And see the room where they were going to take me, because there was a room. I was not the only one. Babies have been, and children, have been being taken for, I mean, sadly, since the day the first, the pilgrims arrived on this land. And they were not the first, by the way. As you know, the first settlement was St. Augustine, Florida, where they spoke Spanish, and then Santa Fe, where they spoke Spanish, and then The Jamestown pilgrims arrive and they speak English, but that's not necessarily the history we're taught. But (laughs) babies have been, this is sadly a reality that we have to face. But for me, oof, it's like, wow, this is is what trauma looks like. Whoa, took my mom 80 years. Well, she's 80 years old now. So it took her 60 years to basically come to terms with something that was very painful.
2: Right. I mean, this agent basically was suggesting that you had German measles and that they would keep her, that they would take her from your mother. And your mother in that moment, you know, stands up all five feet of her and says, you will not take my child.
3: (laughs) She has. Well, you know, that's why the way I would tell this story is that my mother in her, you know, we were not American citizens. We had green cards, so she knew we had rights. But that she stood up and in this voice and she was like, sir, my name is Berta Inojosa, and my husband is Dr. Raul Hinojosa and he was invited to come to the University of Chicago by the president of the University of Chicago and we can call him right now on the phone. You know, Actually, my father was not invited by the president <laughs> of the University of Chicago. But, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what my mother said. She said, that's what trauma looks like. She said, I didn't know what else to do. So she started raising her voice, screaming and saying, you know, and trying and frankly, you know, throwing her privilege around, you know, even though she had a thick Mexican accent um, and a Mexican passport, she knew enough English. She had studied at the English school um, and she understood the basics of, wait, you have a green card, you have rights. And also. And this is what's really hard, is that a mother will fight for her child. Yes. a mother will fight for her child and so all of those women and fathers who have had and and uncles and aunts who have had their their family members taken they are fighting for them and they can't win fight or flight they lose on both counts and that is yet again another traumatic experience.
2: Yes, in so many ways, reading those words of her yelling at the immigration agent who backed down immediately when he saw the depth um, of her resolve and the trauma in that moment and said, okay, yes, ma'am, like I will let you keep her with you and come through. I felt like she was screaming for all the parents. Um, mm.
3: it's, it's, it's interesting because you know, I'm a very, well, I reveal in the book that actually I'm, I always wanted to be an actress, <clears throat> that that's my true calling, but yes. I ended up as a radio journalist instead. Anyway, um, in my theatrical, um, you know, way of talking about this, I would have my mother, you know, screaming up to the six foot four immigration agent um, and just kind of being incredibly histrionic. And, and that, that sense of like, that's all she had. And yet she used it well. And I do think that she handed that down to me. I do.
2: And also the way that you see that experience and how it relates to this nation's history uh, and this nation's treatment of immigrants is also something that I was really struck by. Both feel like real consistent threads throughout your book and, uh, I want to invite our listeners to join this conversation. We're talking with Maria Inajosa, a voice you know as the longtime host of NPR's Latino USA. She's also CEO of Futuro Media Group. And we're talking about her new memoir, Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America, and about her reporting on immigration and her own experiences of uh, a potential family separation. And so you, our listeners, what questions do you have for her? What do you think about America's current immigration system and state and how the American media covers it? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More with Maria Hinojosa. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Maria Inajosa about her new book, Once I Was You, A Memoir of Love and Hate in a Torn America. Inahosa is host of NPR's Latino USA and founder of Futuro Media, a nonprofit news organization that centers the voices of people of color. And Maria Inahosa, I mean, I, I do want to ask you just about some of the latest headlines because we are journalists after all, but also because of what has just happened Uh, with the grand jury in the case of the police in the killing of Breonna Taylor. Uh, First, if I could get your reaction to the grand jury's decision to indict one of the three officers involved. On first degree, wanton endangerment, no charges uh, related to Taylor's death.
3: Yeah, this is a sad time. You know, I live in Harlem in New York City. Last night, um, I heard protests in my community. Um... I I live with my two adult children, so my daughter is 22 years old. Brianna's death has really struck her. Um, And she, you know, we had a moment last night, I actually tweeted about it because, you know, the word impunity is a word that is used very often in Latin America when we talk about femicide. And I think we, we have to talk about impunity in the United States, specifically in this case of the femicide of a black woman and against the lives of black women. So, um, you know, for me, what's important now is again, to make the connections. I, I, again, I also tweeted, this is very, I don't like saying these things, but at the same time, I think, you know, we have to say what these things are. This was not a police involved shooting. This was an extrajudicial murder and when you think about, you know, the kind of violence that has been unleashed historically against Black lives, um, it's part of a continuum. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, all of the long list—they are not, you know, they are not Eric Gardner. So, so here in New York, Eric Gardner, for God's sake. So these things that are happening are built on a, a, a horrific tradition of violence against Black lives. Um, one of the things that I've been saying as I talk about my book is um, that the, the, the original sin was slavery, but the first sin was uh, genocide. And that anti-immigrant hate is built on those two hate. Anti-Indigenous hatred, anti-Black hatred leads very nicely into anti-immigrant hatred. And then the question that we have to understand is anti-immigrant hatred is hatred of the other. The the other, and and basically the other who is not born in this country. And so we have to begin, one of the most beautiful things for me about beautiful and intense was uh, understanding my connection to the people who we know, and, and people in California know this much more than people on the East Coast, but the people who were the very first by law to be excluded from this country, excluded by law. It was actually Chinese, Asian women it started with the women, those women who wanted to come here to meet their husbands and lovers, who were working or sons who were working on the railroad, were my mother. They were my mother, um, who was coming to meet my father. They were labeled as sex workers or prostitutes by an American government, right? That that labeled them and saw them in this way, and that's that that notion. That, that the exclusion begins on the backs of Asian women is something that um, is very powerful. So the book, Once I Was You, is as much about my story as a journalist, you know, as an immigrant, um, as it is also about like, these really important history lessons that tie and bind us all together.
2: Yes, affect us still today. And I do have to say that one of the things I really appreciated about your book was how much you highlighted the shared experiences and interests of people of color, but in particular, Latinos and Asian Americans. I mean, I do think that this is not emphasized enough uh, in terms of the shared history and our intertwined impacts uh in terms of the way immigrants are treated or people who are seen as foreigners Um, correct and yeah go right ahead
3: no thank you for bringing that up i think for me there's a very i'm hoping that this book makes its way into also different communities so one of the communities that i hope it connects with is actually with the vietnamese community because you know as I'm writing about this history, like in real time, and I'm like, wait a second, I lived through this. It it turns out that I was alive during the very first televised refugee crisis. And it was the Vietnamese people. And I write, you know, watching journalism, because I was watching news all the time, even though we didn't have cable. Um, You know, and and this notion that, that the Vietnamese people were never able to speak for themselves. We only saw them in the background. And then this beautiful turn when I become a journalist, um, at NPR working for Scott Simon, and I end up saying, Well, we're gonna do a story about the Vietnamese refugees who have landed who have come here, and how how they see finally giving voice to the Vietnamese community in Corpus Christi. Like that is an experience that is about what binds us all as a country, right? Mm-hmm. And we need to own up. Like, hello, New York Times and San Francisco Chronicle, Time Magazine, Newsweek, all the big ones labeled these people boat people how dare they
2: the journalists how dare yes. they do mm-hmm. how,
3: how dare they do something like that so that you know we're all part of making um of others a reckoning around that yeah. yes
2: and making others anna tweets my grandmother's eldest sibling was kidnapped at ellis island after separation this this was a common story for Italian immigrants before and during World War I. Like Maria Inojosa says, it's an American tradition. This listener writes, as a Latina and a mom of small kids, so much coverage of what is happening at the border is traumatic to watch and see. The images are very triggering. How do you suggest Latinos turn our feelings into something positive? Do you think this is the best way to tell those stories? This has definitely been a conversation around how you tell stories how you humanize people, which I know is such a goal of yours, right? With care, while not exploiting their traumas. Uh,
3: look, we have to tell these stories. We, people want to say, oh, you know, these are Latino stories, or these are Asian stories, or these are immigrant stories. These are American stories. Okay, they're, they're American stories. This is, these are stories that are happening right here in the United States of America and so <clears throat> you know this moment is yet another moment of reckoning again the Black Lives Matter movement teaching us how you own your power and and push for a kind of reckoning so um, for people who were not born in this country and who have family members who are immigrants like my husband and I were not born in this country our children are you know first born uh, generation first generation in this country and so there is a lot of Talk and worry about what we see going on. This is, as we say in Mexican Spanish, esto se siente en la carne propia, like we're feeling it with our skin, on our meat. We're feeling this with the meat on our bones. You know mm-hmm. these policies. Now, it, this is not new. This was not built under the Trump administration. This is one of the things I had to really uncover. And yes, it is very sad. But you know, a pox on both of their houses on the Democrats and the Republicans. But both of their houses, Bill Clinton signed into law the restrictive anti-immigrant uh, laws that led to George W. Bush being able to create all those detention camps that then ramped up after 9-11 on anti-Muslim hate and then you know took off after Obama, which he has yet to apologize for. Um, and then the private prison industry gets involved and that's their ka moment. You know, Black Lives Matter movement is pushing to come to terms with mass uh, incarceration. Well, the way you still make money while you're closing down prisons is that you start taking immigrants and you start making a profit off of their bodies. And anyone, the, the litmus test, this is what's really hard, Mina, is that the, the litmus test is basically were you born in this country or were you not? And that horrifies me, that that's where we are. Um, but that is where we are. So I, I guess that was a long answer to say, please don't be quiet. Please find a way to find your joy. This is not going to go away in a year. We ha- this is uh, an immigration, detention, deportation, mass industrial complex. So everybody is going to have to take part in deconstructing this thing. Everybody. And it's not going to happen overnight. So we need you to sleep, to eat, to find joy, to find love, and to help take this thing down.
2: And I think what you're also saying is that we need to fully understand the role that both Republicans and Democrats played in what we're seeing now as the horrific cruelty on the border uh, in terms of the role that the Obama administration played, the role that the Clinton administration played, as well as Bush and now Trump and i think it helps explain and you can correct me if i'm wrong in terms of why there is a temptation to not feel to not feel connected to the democrats and to the previous administration or to really be energized to vote for a biden even in the face of what has happened under trump
3: yeah well i think the problem is is that um I just honestly I couldn't have imagined when Donald Trump won and I always said he could and I was a little bit ridiculed for that because I was always like no no he he can win he can definitely win and people are like no he's not gonna win you know no no he can win I, I couldn't imagine four years of Donald Trump but look where it's gotten us where women are being uh, forcibly sterilized uh, in immigration detention camps Um, where babies are being taken and babies, toddlers, children, teenagers, women are being sexually assaulted on a continual basis in these places. Um, So this is a truth. I mean, I don't have a baby that I can report on factually, but given everything, this is what we can assume. So if Donald Trump wins another four more years, I um, I just can't imagine where it's going to go. Is this what you say to people
2: tempted to sit it out or saying that? Yes, of course. um,
3: And by the way, uh, (laughs) I'm a journalist. So like Republican, Democrat, I'm going to criticize you. I have no part of the book is actually a moment when I engage with Obama and he gives me a hug and we're on stage and I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I actually went to school with you. But but yeah, no, but you're a politician and I'm a journalist. (laughs) So, you know, um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have yet to give me an interview for Latino USA. ¿Qué es eso, What is that? I'm not a mean person, but I do feel like Latino, Latinos and Latina voters deserve to have some questions answered, as you just did, Mina. You know, people are like, well, yo, bro, you were the vice president under Obama when this was happening. Yes. So, so. Um, this is very hard because Latino and Latinas, we are always blamed for like, well, what's the matter with you that y'all you don't want to get out and vote? Okay. Don't blame the voter. Okay. Blame the parties that don't do the outreach that get the voter enthused, please. Yes. Okay? First of all. and But on the part of Latinos and Latinas, look, we are 32 million voters. We can take this election and throw it in our back pocket because we are at this point are the deciders the fact that latinos and latinas cannot and you know probably many who are listening to this show are you know engaged are going to vote but you know are working people who have felt disenfranchised and devalued you know and their kids they're like eh i get it so that's why we have to say look if it's if it doesn't matter to you then vote for someone who can't We have millions who can't do it for someone who can. And Angela Davis, communist, okay, black power. Angela Davis was the one who said, I don't care. Y'all got to do this. You got to make this happen because this this is white supremacy unleashed. And we feel it in our bones. And so.
2: Yeah, I agree with you, too, though, in terms of just the frustration of the lack of engagement by the Democrats to Asian-American voters as well. I mean, this is also another community that uh, could really make a difference. Where is the outreach? Why so much neglect? Let me go to uh, our callers, and I'll start with uh, Naline in San Francisco. Hi, Naline. Join us. Join us.
4: I really love your show, especially when you're the uh, commentator. Uh, Also, um, I'm an immigrant from Hong Kong, and I came to San Francisco as a very young girl. And at a certain point, when I was around 10, um, 11, my mother really wanted me to be naturalized. So she took me down to the federal building, and these two large men, white men in black, you know, kind of like with black suits, et cetera, took me into a little room, and my mom was really, like, very upset, like, why are you taking my little daughter in the room? And they took me in that room, and they were discussing something, and finally they came to me and said, well, you you have no right to be a citizen. And I said, what? And they said, because your father's not really your father. And you came here under the pretence that that man was your father, so admit it he's not your father and so there were these two big guys looming over me, and I am very small too right now I'm only five foot one and I just remembered all the all the books I had been reading, like Peppy Lomstocking and Ramona and Bees. but I also remembered my mom, and she's extremely strong in her resolute silence but I had to pick like what should I be should I be quiet or should I speak out and they were yelling at me and I just spoke out and said of course he's my father he's my father and they were pummeling me saying he's not he's not admit it admit it and I just kept remembering all the books I read and I I knew that I had to be American strong instead of Chinese strong
3: Mm.
4: and I was American strong and then they just gave up And then I told my mom, and she started to cry, and we took the bus, and um, she held on to my green card and kept rubbing it and rubbing it. And even as I speak now, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm crying, and I, I dread, I fear that what if I had said nothing and succumbed? Where would I be now? What would my mom have done? And the thing I want to say is that we talk about speaking out. My mom not speaking out. Asian women not speaking out does not mean they are not strong. They are strong. They are Asian strong because what they have had to endure in silence is more than anything anybody could have. So they are also strong. What year was this? What year was this? This was in nineteen let's see. I came here in nineteen fifty seven. So nineteen sixties.
2: Hm. Right around the same time for yeah. you.
4: So you See now? how we are tied together? Yes. Her I become naturalized child till I was calm. nineteen.
3: Yeah. So we're we're tied together. We're and, and the sad thing is that, that I mean of course trauma, that's what has me so worried about what we're experiencing now, because these children, these, you know, babies, these toddlers who have been exposed like this woman to this kind of horror, it stays with you. So (laughs) I've said this publicly, so they shouldn't be surprised that, you know, Biden and Kamala Harris should absolutely take this moment to say, hey, 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 these places need to be shut down immediately, and we need to begin an immediate reunification process that comes with unlimited, free mental health for all of the family members involved with this. This is trauma. This is historical trauma. This is what toxic stress looks like, where it gets not not toxic stress, but rather um, historical stress that begins just being a part of you. And we need. Get these stories out
2: it it's a part of you and it and it gets passed on we'll have more with maria inahosa talking about immigration policy talking about the latest news of the day and talking about her personal experiences as often the first or at in every newsroom the first latina when she entered stay with us for more after the break i'm mina kim this is forum This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Maria Inahosa, author of the new memoir, Once I Was You, also host of NPR's Latino USA and CEO of Futura Futuro Media Group. What are your questions for Maria Inahosa? Have you dealt with anxiety, challenges, managing past traumas, managing a demanding career and family life, as she has? What would you like to say about how the American media covers immigration, politics? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at KQED Org. Rebecca writes, I'd like to know what Maria thinks of the long-term prospects for this very multidimensional population of people, Hispanic Americans, Latinx, Latinos, Chicanos, and other labels we identify with. When, as American citizens, will we be fully embroidered into the fabric of America and be called Americans? The only time that I've ever been called an American is when traveling overseas.
3: Well, I definitely think we are fully embroidered everywhere in the United States of America. So that's not the issue. I mean, and what I mean is like (laughs) I've been to all 50 states plus plus two. The only place that I didn't see Latinos were they there was in Guam because I've been to all 50 states plus two territories, Puerto Rico and Guam. So I would say of all of those, the only place that I didn't see Latinos is Guam. So this, we are completely fully embroidered into the American reality. I have Latinos who live in Idaho who love Idaho, who live in Ohio who love Ohio, Latinos who live in Mississippi who are just like this is our state. So we are, I mean, we are um, a, a multi-trillion dollar market we are – Latinas are the most sought-after consumer by, by uh, consumer companies because we are so brand loyal and we over-index in terms of white and black women over what we decide will be bought by our entire families. So we are all of that, and at the same time, we're completely invisible.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: That, that is, That's what's just so frustrating because, you know – so let's just take capitalism for a moment here. Like, if you want to just look at look at it from a capitalistic perspective, you know, this is not you. It's not about identity, if you will. It's like, oh, yo, do you guys understand the products and where you're gonna be selling and what demographic charts look like? Do you understand this, or are you so blinded by your white supremacy that you can't see it? And that's where where it gets really frustrating, you know, where somehow it's perceived because Latinos and Latinas are asking for visibility, demanding it, that we are, like, um, ungrateful, that we're asking for too much, why don't we just be quiet, like, you know, these things, and it's just like and especially in California, which is California, you know, and Nevada and Arizona and Nuevo Mexico, por favor, o sea, Utah, etc. So the notion that we are seen as the other still is oh, so horrifying. Again, I throw this back to Latinos and Latinas. Ain't nobody going to do this but us. And I think the big, just to finish this, Mina, I, I, my worry here is that given that there are so many young people who are growing up at a time when Latino hatred is so specific and targeted coming from the White House on down, that how many Latinos and Latinas will be just like, yeah, no, I'm not that. I am not Latino and Latina. I am not Mexican. I am not Salvadorian. I am not Chicano. I am not any of those things. Don't call me that because I am not what he says. And that that really would be terrible for our entire country because we are who we are. We should be proud of bringing that and because it's always been a part of this country.
2: Yeah, I wanted to read this sort of related question from this listener. You talk about your deep pride in being Mexican-American and at the same time confronting anti-Mexican attitudes in the US. How do you reconcile those? Why do you think that anti mexican is so normalized in the US?
3: Well, because that's that is what this country does. It, it, You know, and that's part of what I was trying to do with Once I Was You is to deconstruct the narrative. It's like false advertising. You know, you tell us the Statue of Liberty and all of these great stories of immigration that we're an immigrant nation, but actually in policy, it's not. It's not that. In fact, it is incredibly restrictive based on race and ethnicity outright. So, (laughs) you know, my daughter said to me this morning, was it this morning or yesterday she said, hey, you know, do, maybe we need to move. She was like, how do you think you think you can help me move to Switzerland? <laughs> and I'm like, um, no, I can't really help you. Maybe you want to fall in love. You know that. But it's like, where are we going? Yeah. Where am I going exactly? To Europe? No. To Dominican Republic? Uh, to Mexico? I'm not going to I'm going to stop fighting for democracy in those places So my life is here, and so I'm not going to stop fighting. And and Latinos and Latinas have to understand that we got to be in this for the long haul. And it means actually talking to our friends, families, and neighbors about these questions, um, about who we are
0: and how we see ourselves in this country.
2: Let me go to John in San Diego. Hi, John.
0: Morning. I really like your topic. I mean, it's wonderful. I'm an immigrant from Ireland, and when I came, I did something a lot of people did, uh, overstayed my visa. And I remember my family making an appointment with an immigration lawyer for me and going to see this gentleman. And I sat there, and I had all the paperwork filled out and stuff. And the next thing he looked at me, he said, oh, you shouldn't worry about it. And I said, why shouldn't I worry about it? And then he said, well, nobody's looking for you. And I thought, why? What do you mean nobody's looking for you? You're white. <laughs> And I was shocked. I mean I was like I just come from Ireland and all of a sudden I started like looking around in America and realizing that it was a foreign country, that the way people thought wasn't at all was just as much as if I had gone to Germany and I couldn't understand the language. All of a sudden I found myself with a cultural difference. And it took me a long time and it's sad to kinda see how can I, can I ask you
3: a question? Can I ask you a question? How, how often do you speak publicly about the fact that you overstayed your visa and that there was a period of time when you were undocumented, uh, living without papers in this country? How often do you say that this publicly?
0: Is, this is the first time I've ever said it out loud, and I don't know if you can hear a shake in my voice, I but it's the it. first time I've ever done it. And so, I did so, get my citizenship, and right, we, it was we, during this Simpson-Mardoli bill.
3: Right. We need you. Right. That was 1996, the, the um, uh, Immigration Reform and Control Act. So we actually need you desperately. We actually need you to show your face and to tell your story and to say what happened, because one, I mean, the Irish people are a political people. I mean, there are so many Irish undocumented here in New York who organize, who have formed relationships with the undocumented Latino community and fought together. So for that reason, and also because, you know, there is a huge undocumented Irish population and that agent was exactly right. And so what you can say is, you see, you think you know what an undocumented immigrant looks like. But that's an illusion. You can never tell what an undocumented person looks like. And that's why we need to stop this, because it dehumanizes. So thank you so much for sharing this. But I And I know this was hard. I honor you. Thank you so much. And I would say you have nothing to be afraid of, but we need you desperately to talk publicly about this.
2: That's what I wanted to say too, John. I mean, Thank you for doing it for the first time today on our air. And I can hear the shake in your voice.
0: Can I, can I, say, can I say one last thing? When it came time for me to submit the paperwork for my immigration policy, um, I was the person that was taking my $90 pushed it back to me and said, are you HIV positive? And I realized, yes, I am. And so he pushed it back and said, don't do that because you won't get in. And so I remember the night that the bill was passed and it became law and I sat at home becoming invisible again. And eventually I was able to get my citizenship, but I fought really hard for it to get us.
3: John, oh my God, your story is like, I I really hope you can find me and get in touch with me because I'm fascinated by your story because that's the, the othering, you know, so, you know, the pandemic, right? And the exclusion of the AIDS pandemic and being told, don't you dare say that or else you'll never be let in. So John, your story is deeply important for this moment for us to see. And again, thank you so much for sharing that.
2: I mean, and this other listener writes, the media doesn't carry coverage about immigration nearly enough. It should be headline news all the time. And Nancy tweets, I hope someone high up in the Biden campaign is listening to Maria Inajosa. I do want to just ask you if you could share your your story of finding NPR. I I was really moved by this. You were listening to someone report intelligently in English on Latin America. Blew your mind, but the detail of you when you found that, not physically letting go of the dial, because you were afraid that you would, with the slightest movement, you would lose what you had found.
3: I love this story. And of course, public radio people love this particular moment in the book, which is, you know, I'm a teenager. I'm a Mexican kid who's growing up on the south side of Chicago. And I'm playing with the only radio that we had in the house, which was a little beat up plastic box that, you know, was screechy on the, you know, when you would move the little dial to. And one day I had taken the radio to the my back room. I was cleaning, I think I was, you know, taking down whatever Elton John posters or something like that. And I'm, you know, I I play with the dial and all of a sudden I hear somebody saying something like to the effect of, and it was a man, it was a man, but he was saying something like, and today in Latin America protests today developed in Mexico City because of a concern over human rights while in El Salvador <laughs> I
2: love your public radio or,
3: voice. You know, the public radio voice but while well, in El Salvador there were details about some kind of you know not but but they were talking about Latin America which I was from and they were talking about it in a way that wasn't yelling at me and um, and it just clicked and one of the beautiful things that happened in the writing of this book was my realization that actually my first exposure to public media was not in the United States it was in Mexico those of uh, in your listener audience who are mexican will know radio educacion which is education radio or el canal 11 channel 11 these are radio universidad which is the university radio all of those were public radio public television and i was seeing that even before i heard npr But then it clicked. I was like, oh, wait, they have public radio here and it's blah, 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 and it did. Now, the interesting thing, Mina, is that even though that was a watershed moment for me as a listener, because we were invisible from the news media writ large, I still didn't think, oh, wow, and now I want to work there because there were none. So I still didn't think like, oh, I could do that. It was like somebody else is going to do that. I'll listen. It's
2: not. Yeah. Maria Inajosa, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And Maria Inajosa, I mean, yeah, one of the things I was struck by was for you to even apply to that first NPR internship, you had to be pushed. It's hard to
3: imagine that. Yeah, well, so so I've been asked uh on this virtual book tour, you know, what can allies do? Um, especially in regards to young journalists um who are Latino or Latina or immigrant or not white. Um, What can you do? And I, I, I mean, you understand that right now, if you're young and Latino, you are getting a lot of mixed messages. There's a lot of hate. That's why there's hate in my title, because it is hate. And so if you see someone, oh, you know, please build them up. I mean, I'm, I'm a professor. I like to joke that I'm Mexican, so I have 16 jobs because I can never say no to work. And so, you know, I'm a professor as well as everything else I'm, I'm at my, my alma mater, Barnard College. In fact, when I finish this, I'll be teaching for two hours after this interview. And I tell my students that they need to own their power, own who they are. Um, I mean, I basically just say, you, you, you got to do this. You have to own this moment. So um, that's mm. just something that, you know, we we have to do. We have to force ourselves to do it. And I would just say that, again, anybody who is listening to this has an element of privilege. And for me, privilege means responsibility because there are so many who do not even have the privilege to be listening to public radio in the middle of the day. Yes. So um, so So keep at it, young journalists. And for those of you who are allies, give a shout out, say good job, do it, go, believe it, because that's how I ended up applying for that internship. If Jane Gould hadn't said that, I wouldn't be here.
2: Yes, it's like gold. Juan Carlos tweets, I am you, I'm Mexican. I have and still face discrimination and systemic racism. Most recently, I faced discrimination at work where equity initiatives are led by people who I know are racist and have no sincere interest in true equity. Let me go to Lou in San Francisco. Hi, Lou.
0: Hi, how are you guys doing today?
2: Great, what's on your mind?
0: Well, I got a question for Maria. Um, If she could say something uh, about how the surge that we've seen in the last few years of of, uh, people coming up from Central America, how that's related to the horrible policies of our country towards that region, really Mm -hmm. since the 1950s. And I I think people need to uh, understand that.
3: Thank you for your question. Uh, and it's actually not since the 1950s. I mean, the United States was involved in Central America at the turn of this uh, of the century in the 1900s. The United States had their hands there. And then, yes, big big intervention, Guatemala with United Fruit Company. Um, I would I would take issue with your your word, sir. With all due respect, um, I I'm, I'm a, I have a problem with the term surge because I don't think it is this. I think we need to have a sense of context. Um, These are not 2 million people who are coming and uh, at the border clamoring to to come in, Okay, These are uh, several thousand, you know? These are the people who are the most desperate, who cannot take it anymore. And so I just want to play down this notion of the surge or people, you know, these are the most desperate people who have found some form of wherewithal to actually get up and leave, when many of us, you know, faced with kind of terror situations, can't even move. Um, your question about the relationship means everything to me because if you read my book, Once I Was You, that's that's where I actually reveal that yes, actually I was an activist. I'm not an activist now, but I was an activist in college, and I wasn't an activist for the Mexican Revolution. I was an activist for Central America for women from El Salvador. So how is it possible that in the 1980s, the United States was sending millions of dollars a day in military hardware down to El Salvador, to Guatemala, to Honduras, to militarize these places in the 1980s to a huge degree, hundreds of thousands of people dead in in, in El Salvador, potentially 100,000 dead in, in Guatemala. So... I I Sadly, I have met journalists who are, I'm not going to drop any names, but names that you all know. Journalists who I said, yes, isn't it incredible that this is happening after what was going on in the 1980s? And this person turned to me and said, what do you mean? They didn't remember. So thank you for connecting the dots. Please do a little bit of, uh, of research and understanding that you are exactly right this central america relationship with the united states is not new and the united states bears so much responsibility for the torrent of violence um i mean in el salvador many of these people who became you know killers in the military or right-wing death squads were trained in georgia in the united states
2: well jonathan writes thank you for having maria Inojosa on forum my wife and i have tuned in every sunday evening for her program latino usa For many years. Marina, Maria Inajosa, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate talking with you.
3: Oh, love speaking with you, Mina. Thank you so much.
2: Maria Inajosa, her memoir is Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America. Blanca Torres produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks so much for listening to Forum.
4: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.